Everybody, um, welcome to another episode of Recovery Friends Podcast, uh, where people who are in active recovery from addiction share their unique experience in the hope that listeners still in active addiction uh, can possibly identify with their stories and find hope for their own recovery. We are not affiliated, or do we speak for any 12-step programs or any other addiction or recovery-based entity? The words spoken here are the experiences, reflect the experiences of our guests and not the opinion of their chosen path to recovery. Thank you. All right. So, yeah, it's kind of, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so today on our podcast, we have um, a friend. We, we know each other loosely. <laughs> it's funny because most of the people I've had on here so far have been friends, like, you know, like yeah. close people. So it's so like now I'm starting to venture out into people that I know, you know, mm-hmm. met a few times that, you know, so because uh, you run out of friends eventually. Yeah, so, of course. <laughs> uh, but I do know you um, and um, Jacob. Um, Jacob is um, you've been sober a while. Uh, yeah, April the 2nd of 2006, so okay. just made 13 wow. years, yeah. Uh, get a little bit closer to the 13 video. years. There you go, 13. Yeah, it. April the 2nd of 2006. Wow, insane. Yeah, came yeah. in to, uh, I'm not going to say started attempting recovery in 06. I, um, I went through my first uh, alcohol and drug addiction treatment center in 2001 whenever I was 16. Oh, wow. So I was in and out for a little while before it actually worked. Before I really became willing to do the work to yeah. get sober, I didn't want to be sober before. So yeah, wow. Two thousand one, I graduated high school in oh one. I was I was well into the depths of my addiction <laughs> yeah. by then, but I didn't even try to like do anything about it till really two thousand nine. I got a DUI. You know, it had gotten pretty bad. So. I mean, I don't know if kudos to you for being so <laughs> fucked up so early. You're right. <laughs> uh, but you don't want to be homecoming king of this thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not an award. <laughs> yeah. You, you would think that a lot of people like are always trying to one up each yeah, other. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times. Uh, so, yeah. No. I, I, and uh, usually I'll, I'll give like my first like memories and my experiences with people that, that come on. And I don't have many. But I do remember you when I first got sober. From Baton Rouge or from... Here. Well, I lived in Baton Rouge. Right, actually. right. I remember you saying that in yeah. your story. Uh, I lived in Baton Rouge, yeah, from like '06 to uh, to '11, like five years. Um, and I went to a meeting out there a few times after I got my DUI in '09, and uh, I don't remember you then. I remember you when I went to treatment in 2012 or '11, and uh, and then I remember. And I just I remember you guys came in to a TNC. Meeting, yeah, yeah. Uh, around that time, you and some other guy, like a beefy dude, you know. Uh, <laughs> huh. And I and, you, and so like when I first beefy. started going into treatment and trying to get sober, you know, bad, yeah, yeah, bad yeah, attitude, you know, like judgmental. So I was like, I judged. I was like, who's this guy? This fucking dude. A lot of people ba- say I'm cocky, from but I'm really passionate. Is yeah. more really the thing. Whenever. Yeah, I don't know that I said. Maybe I maybe I sensed that you were cocky. I I, <laughs> I was like probably like 
jealous that you were sober and doing well, you know, like that's probably like the underlying uh, like fact. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember thinking, look at this fucking douchebag, you know, yeah. just kind of. <laughs> and, and look, I've had several people make amends to me over the years. <laughs> that's well, <laughs> But they didn't think that they were yeah. like, I told a bunch of people you were a douchebag. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I mean, and not that you put off a douche vibe. It's just, you know, somebody who's passionate about right, recovery right, coming right. in and like, this guy, I, I, you, you're a little bit younger than me. So it's right. like, what does he know? What life experience does he have? <laughs> and then, and then I remember you another time at a, at a Wipehaw event for some reason. And I, and, and you got up and announced something at the podium. It was in, it was in, it was in Mobile, I think. I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember this, and this is the, the, the main thing I remember about you. You, you, you said something and everybody went, well, yeah. And then like you raised the roof like this. And I was like, confirmed douchebag. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's all newcomer stuff, right? There's no validity or reality in it. You know, I'm just looking for, th I'm just looking for. I don't raise the roof anymore. <laughs> I just want to clarify anybody that hears this. I if no, you dude. run across me along the way, you will not see me raising any roofs. Hey, you know what? I raised the roof today. I ain't ashamed yeah, of it. And, and that's the thing. You were just kind of being free and, and yourself up there, like natural, free to be like goofy or whatever. And I, and I with all my hangups and, and before I experienced this release from like, you know, obsession with self, looked at that and could only judge it and not see it for what it was. I did the same thing whenever yeah. I was 16 coming in. You know, that's why I couldn't get sober. Mm -hmm. I compared all the negativity. You know, I didn't look any positive. And yeah. he, I think that's even how it is today. You know, I always look for a way to, to, to disassociate myself with other people whenever I'm really struggling. You know? Yeah. It's like I disassociate or disconnect myself from you. And really, I disconnect myself from God. You yeah. know? And uh, whenever I was just trying to get sober, can't coming in, going out, in and out, in and out, in and out. I always did that. I never looked for anything that connected me. I looked yeah. for everything that separated me. You know? Yeah, the terminal uniqueness, man. That's like, that's a very, like, it, like I remember hearing that when I first got sober and it never resonating as much as it resonates today. Right. I think about like, yeah, that shit is fucking deadly. Yep. Um, so yeah, anyways, that's my initial reaction. And then now I, I've come to like really, really respect you and your program from what I see from afar. And I've heard you. Uh, it's because you got sober. Yeah. Because <laughs> I finally got sober. Right. Got some sense in me. Uh, but uh, so yeah, so um, basically if you want to just start off like just like, telling your story at a meeting and then I'll interject with some probably irrelevant stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> so uh I have a sobriety date of April the 2nd of 2006, and I'm sober from all minor mood-altering substances, alcohol, and other chemicals. Um, you know, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can say that because I'm not breaking my anonymity with my last name. And uh, my home group is uh, it's at a place in Jefferson, Louisiana. And uh, we're an open, uh, we're a closed discussion meeting. We talk about the literature and the 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I believe in the 12 steps and I'm focused on that. I'm very passionate about helping others and involved highly with treatment and corrections. And uh, I believe that there's a special place in my heart for that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm honored anytime that I'm asked to do anything recovery related, you know, uh, if it's digitally or, or in person or anything like that, it's, it's an honor and privilege to be able to do this. So 
Thank you very much for even asking me yeah, to participate. Well, thanks for doing it. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a, a small town, uh, 60 miles south by southwest of, of New Orleans, uh, Homa, Louisiana. There's a popular TV show called Swamp People that's filmed there. A lot of people around the, the country would reference that. Um, oh, really? Is the guy that the uh, the the, the, the Chudum Chudum guy? guy? Yeah, he it's he's not from there, but he's from like twenty minutes away. Yeah, yeah. He's he looks like uh, Jesse Ventura. I always <laughs> thought. <laughs> I was like, what's Jesse Ventura doing? He still does like meet and greet with people over there, wow. and the show's been canceled for a while. Yeah, it's a, shit. He milk it's, as it's, long as he can. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> so there's not really anything to do down there. Uh, you're 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 at least thirty foot below sea level. Uh, to, to really, you know, you work in the oil field, you work in the, the seafood industry, you drink 30 you, foot below sea level. Yeah. Yeah. 20 to 30 foot. The, the highest Ridge area over there is actually like two foot above sea level, but it's uh -huh. a levee. Wow. Yeah. So you're sunken down pretty good over there. I don't there. understand how that works. It's, I don't know either, <laughs> but that's what I was always told. It's the swamp. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're down there. Um, but I grew up like. In the swamps, you know, shooting them, hunting, hunting alligator and running turtle lines and like stuff like that. Wow. You know, it was a it was a wonderful place for an alcoholic to uh, to grow up. I wouldn't change anything about it. It's blue collar, hardworking people, very genuine people as well. A little rough around the edges, but really, really like caring about their neighbor, mm -hmm. you know, like that kind of uh, atmosphere. Uh, my dad worked in the oil field. He was also in po local politics. Uh, he believed in local politics over larger scale because he be believed that the community, uh, the impact in the community was the most important thing. Yeah. And uh, my dad instilled in me a lot of values and of being a service to people, even though when he wasn't an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, at a very young age. Yeah. But he worked a lot. My mom, um, she was bipolar, schizophrenic, and manic depressive, and also an alcoholic. So she would... Um, she would take her medication and she would drink heavy liquor with it. So the medication would never work right. She would flip out a lot. She'd have a lot of nervous breakdowns and be hospitalized a lot. I'm the youngest of seven. I have three brothers and three sisters. All of my siblings have been to some type of a, an anonymous program or a, a ward or a hospital or an institution wow. in some capacity or another. And um, when my mom physically wasn't able to take care of me, and my dad was working, my older siblings would have to look after me until my mom would interfere and they were getting physical altercations. And um, they ended up dropping me off for a lady that really looked after me and watched over me growing up was my, my, my godmother and my nanny, a lady, a lady named Miss Etta. And uh, she was almost 100 years old when she passed away. She was an African-American woman. And she couldn't have children of her own, so she actually took in and adopted several children. Wow. Um, yeah, I think uh, racism was still pretty prevalent back in that area at that time, back in the 80s. And she ended up, um, somebody left their child on her doorstep that was mixed. And his name was Michael, and I grew up with him. And she literally adopted him and raised him like like it was her child, you know? Oh, wow. Miss Etta. Yep, Miss Etta. Miss Etta wow. Welsh. And uh, <laughs> I go down once a year, and, uh, and I'll go in a painter tomb. Wow. And uh, she was a godsend. She really was. Amazing. She instilled in me a lot of morals, a lot of beliefs, a lot of values. You paint her tomb? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, she doesn't have any living relatives is that anymore. a thing people do, paint tombs? No. Well, down there, it's just, well, you have to think you're below sea level. It's kind of like being here in the city. Uh -huh. Everything's above ground. 
So you have the casing oh, on the outside. Paint it, like, yeah. Just paint it white. Right. Paint yeah. it. Like, yeah. Not it. like not like decorative. <laughs> it's gonna I'm be like, like yeah. various colors. Clean it off. Get the the mildew and the mold uh, and the okay. algae and all that off. Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, it's practical. Here in Louisiana, <laughs> tombs are above ground. Yeah. If you're listening to this, I have to explain that a little clearer you explained it to me i mean i right. get it i just never thought of the, about like the necessity of that which i i see it now yeah <laughs> she brought me to a gospel church growing up and uh you know you always hear the uh the term of square pegs and round holes you know whenever you come into a recovery program you never felt like you belonged or fit and i did feel like a square peg in a round hole i was the white kid in the gospel church but I felt nothing but love and acceptance. Uh, I clapped and I was singing. But more than anything, it made me unique because I stood out. People were interested in me. Kids my age wanted to talk to me and ask me questions. <laughs> and, like, and, and I fed off of that even yeah. at a young age. I also want to clarify and, and say that today, going through the 12-step process, making restitution to my mom for the things that I had done, I know my mother did the best job that she was capable of growing up. She was a sick person, but I remember making amends to my mom several years ago, admitting my wrongs and for her crying whenever she heard me say I forgave her for what she had done, you know, regardless. And I loved her unconditionally. And she said she was just waiting for her whole life for just one of her children to say that they forgave her. You know, I know today she was overwhelmed. She was a sick person, mentally sick person. She doesn't drink anymore. She just quit drinking. She came to AA for a little bit and she found out that she didn't belong in AA or she, she thought she didn't belong in AA because some of the things that had happened at a clubhouse, Yeah, not going to get into it, but they, uh, she just doesn't drink anymore. She goes, she does peer to peer counseling with people with dual diagnosis yeah. twice, a, twice a week. And she does the Louisiana warm line for uh, suicide prevention. Wow. And so that's like not, her service work. She's got a, like, yeah, an avenue to, to be a yeah, purpose. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I call her every Friday on my way home from work. Uh, and I just let her know I'm thinking about her, you know, and I might talk to her for 20 minutes, maybe talk to her for five minutes, just to let her know I, I care about her. I love you. I'm thinking about you. After I lost my dad, I did some inventory work and I felt like I needed to start putting that effort into my mother, you oh. know, cause I did a lot for my dad. So that's incredible. dude. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, following the directions of other people and their example really yeah. taught me that, you know, because up to me, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. I wouldn't have done that a long time ago. But uh, so, yeah, I grew up down there. I uh, <clears throat> I'd had sips of alcohol or pools off of a beer, which is custom here at a seafood boil at like a crawfish boil, a crab boil. Everybody drinks beer. So your father, your parent would say, hey, go get me a beer out the icebox. You get a beer and you get to get a little pull off of the icebox, the icebox, the refrigerator. Term. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> super, super Southern, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, the first time alcohol had actually worked was whenever I... Uh, I was 12 years old and I had some friends over and I drank uh, Blue Beast and Mad Dog 2020, some gin and juice and uh, very cheap gin and juice. And I drank that stuff down. I blacked out that night. I don't remember anything that happened that night. I woke up the next mid morning. I was talking to some friends. I'm like, what happened last night? And they, uh, they told me, you know, what had happened. Uh, I can't remember clearly anything that transpired, but I remember something very, very clearly was whenever I took a sip of the gin, I took another sip of the gin and the warm sensation came over me. And I once heard somebody describe that feeling as 
you know, um, <laughs> the, the literature, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous explains that as a complete psychic change. Once yeah. I put alcohol in my body, uh, ideas, emotions, attitudes were just cast to the side and completely replaced with new ideas and conceptions. I, uh, I felt like I had a lead coat on in my entire life. And for the first time I was able to drop it to the ground. I didn't have the weight of, my, of the world on my shoulders anymore. All the chaos going on with my family, my mom, my brothers, my sisters, like all that stuff just disappeared. I wasn't the short buck tooth kid with freckles anymore. I can talk to girls. I felt comfortable in my own skin. I danced that night. You know, <laughs> I talked to the pretty girl. Like I did everything that I'd always wanted to do, but I had so much fear that consumed me that I would never take the action to do it. Yeah. And I remember that and being told these stories afterwards. You know what I'm saying? They're like, dude, you were on fire last <clears throat> night. No, <laughs> break dancing. No, I'm just I, uh, I didn't drink every single day after that. I became like a hard drinker or a weekend drinker. I, uh, I didn't have any consequences if I was like riding a bicycle or walking around the neighborhood, you know, uh, whenever I was 16 years old was whenever the problems kind of came in. Um, you see, I like to drink and drive and I'm not proud of that. Uh, but I remember I was driving to school my 10th grade year. I just got my driver's license literally a couple months before. And, uh, I had, you know, become, it was becoming more than just a weekend deal and a heavy drinker. And uh, I was on a bender for several days and I remember uh, running over a girl crossing a crosswalk and uh, as selfish and self-centered as I was I didn't kill her I remember getting out my vehicle her head smashed my windshield and her I fractured her elbow on my side view mirror but getting out of my vehicle 16 years old more than just a hard drinker you know mm. as I talked I said bad luck all yeah. the time back then I'm yelling at her. If she would have just looked both ways, it was her fault or the crossing guards fault or the school board. It was like everybody's fault, but mine, yeah. you know, even at 16 years old, I wasn't taking full responsibility for my, my actions. Uh, later on that year, I ended up going to this house party and, um, uh, I remember going to this house party on the way there, there was this drawbridge and sitting on this drawbridge and all of a sudden the lights went out on me and I blacked out and I woke up again the next day, the mid morning. So we could see like what's happening. You know, the first drink at 12 years old, I'm 16 years old. It's becoming more than just, I mean, it's blacking out every time yeah. I'm starting to pick up here, you know, and crossing the threshold of the invisible line where I'm becoming an alcoholic and a drug addict. You see, I love the effect that alcohol has upon me. It just didn't work fast enough. So I take this alcohol and I take these sedatives or these prescription pills with it and I'd reach oblivion as quickly as possible. Yeah. And that's what happened that night. I wake up the next day wondering where I'm at. I'm in a room full of people I vaguely recognize. I have blood on my clothes. I asked this girl next to me, I'm like, well, what happened last night? I'm like, I don't remember anything. And she told me a story, this humiliating story about it. I went to this party and all these things that happened. And I swore it off that I was never going to do that again. Like, I'm done forever. I can't believe I did that. You know, mm -hmm. all these things. You didn't and try to jump the drawbridge, did you? No, no. I just, I don't remember anything wow. at all, you know. And uh, I ended up getting in my vehicle about an hour later. And um, the literature, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says we can't bring into consciousness with sufficient force to pain, suffering, and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We were without a defense against the first drink. Uh, and I swore it off that day, that, that minute, that I was never going to do it again. And I meant it with everything in me that I was never going to do it again. 
And an hour later, I was getting in my car saying it was going to be different this time. Yeah. You know, at 16 years old and like truly believing that this time it was going to be different. You know, I drove about 20 minutes away to my brother's house in Thibodeau, Louisiana, which is pronounced Thibodeau. Thibodeau. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I went to my brother's house and, uh, and I was like, look, I just need to sleep this off. I've been in and out of consciousness for several days now. I've been on a bender. I've been on a binge. I just need to go to sleep. And he gave me a handful of sedatives, some Xanax and stuff. And he's like, well, take these. I popped them. He's like, well, you can't stay here though. After I popped them. He's like, I got to go somewhere. So you got to go home. Can you make it home? I was like, yeah, of course I can make it home. Right. I get my car. I get about a mile down the road and it's like either turn left or turn right or go into this 20 foot drainage canal and I'm thinking turn left, but my hand and my mind weren't really cooperating. And I went straight into this canal and, uh, and I totaled my car and I cro- climbed out of the sunroof. This is the day after. The day of. The, literally the day of waking up and yeah. saying I'm never doing it again. This is like two hours after swearing it off, right? Yeah, insane. <clears throat> it is, yes. <laughs> Very insane. <laughs> I, cl- I climbed out of the sunroof. That's how I was able to get out of the vehicle. And uh, the first vehicle that I flagged down was a red truck. I remember it being red. I don't know how I remember it, but I remember it. And it was two gentlemen that got out, two younger guys. And I'm like, look, I towed my car. And they're like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, everything's great. I'm good. Everything's fine. They said, hold on. And they reached in their vehicle and they grabbed the walkie-talkie. And they were off-duty firefighters. Oh. How convenient, oh. right? <laughs> Emergency response people. And they like, beep, beep, called the cops oh, right in. Man. And in like two minutes, the cops were there. So I got my first defense DWI that day at 16 years old. Yeah. And, uh, and really, I mean, it, it could have been looked at. I mean, really, that was like maybe the universe stepping in and saying, okay, let's give this kid some hard consequences. <laughs> yeah. But the problem was, is even knowing that the universe would step in to give me hard consequences, my dad was so sick and enabling yeah. that he would always try to interfere and give me a slap on the wrist, yeah. you know, because growing up down there, it's all politics. It's yeah. all about who and he you knows know, everybody. you know, like, yeah, He's like, I'm going to this good get old you out boy. of it. I mean, it's yeah. still kind of like that today over here, yeah. no matter where you are in the South, especially it's, a small town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um. I ended up in a treatment center the next day and uh, it was an adolescent treatment center and uh, it was in Opelousas, Louisiana, which is by Lafayette, Louisiana. And uh, treatment did what it was designed to do. It introduced me to an anonymous program. Yeah. AA was the first meeting I went to actually. Um, it was an impromptu speaker meeting at this like old crack house. Like, in the, I mean, this is a, Real shithole. <laughs> it's like, uh, like legitimately, it used to be a crack house. Yeah, like, and they're like, oh, and now somebody sold it to AA. You know, uh. we're going to have some meetings here or something, you know? And uh, I ended up, um, it was an impromptu speaker meeting, and this guy was up there talking about urinating on himself and sleeping under bridges and losing his wife and his kids. We're talking about looking for the differences, right? Um, he was talking about all these things and I'm like 16 years old and I'm like, check, 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 check. I'm too young. This is bad luck. I don't really have a problem. I smoke a little weed, you know, I'm not an alcoholic and all this stuff. And I left there. They wanted me to do 90 days. I did 30 days and got out of there. Uh, I didn't have a desire to stay sober. I didn't want to be sober. I was trying to get loaded on like my melatonin in there. You know what I'm saying? Like it was pretty, pretty sick. And, uh, I ended up going back to Homa, my hometown 
And I said it was the high school that I was going to that was my problem. I just need to switch over to a different high school and everything's going to be okay, right? Yeah. So I switched over to this new high school. Not only did I switch over, but my little cousin and two other friends had switched over because they had just gotten out of juvenile detention centers and treatment centers themselves. And they were going to change their lives too, you know, like <laughs> the, the wolf pack just kind of like moved over to the other side of town. Yeah. And I don't remember anything in my 11th and 12th grade year. It was uh, all extracurricular activity, all, all hobbies, fishing, hunting, uh, basketball, baseball, like anything that I like to do outside of drinking and doing drugs was just non-existent. Oh. I was blacking out every single day. Uh, I would, if I would not have benzos in my system, I was starting to have seizures at, at 17 and 18 years old. I mean, literally having seizures, having to be hospitalized, wow. but still saying it was just, it was bad luck. You know, yeah. that's what my problem was. Um, the only way I graduated high school was because I cheated my way through. Yeah, me too. And, I mean, that's not, I'm, I don't like to admit that I'm a pretty, yeah. I like to think I'm a pretty intelligent person, you know, if I really applied myself, but I had so much fear that if I really tried and applied myself and I failed, well, you know, it was on me, but if I didn't really try and I cheated, yeah. well, you know, I always, uh, had this weird delusion that, that the fact that I was able to cheat my way through high school showed resiliency, showed, showed, showed right. that I could, uh, showed that I, when push come to shove, I can, I could do what I had to do to make, to like get, get the grade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We ended up, um, the state of Louisiana thought better than me going to, uh, to Mexico for my senior trip. And they sent me to Morgan City, Louisiana, uh, which was very exotic <laughs> to rehab again. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was there for like 27 days. I got kicked out the day before my discharge day for talking to a female. And uh, that's what they said on paper that they wrote me up uh, several times for talking to this girl because she was passing notes to me. But the truth of the matter was, is they kicked me out of there because I was taking up a bed for somebody that really wanted it. Yeah. You know, like that they were going to die if they weren't going to have that bed. And I didn't want to be there. You know, I didn't want to be sober. I didn't want to, like, I was just taking up space. Like the judge, my mom, my dad, all these people could stick me in these places. You could stick me in jail. I'll just do time. You could stick me in rehab. I'm just going to sit there. You know, I had no desire or willingness to be sober. Yeah. And they ended up um, kicking me out and they sent me to this outpatient program and they made a deal with me. If, uh, if I don't fill one drug test or one breathalyzer test, they would write a, a letter to the judge and the PO because by this time I was on probation for like five years straight. They would like to say you're off of papers permanently. Just don't fail any drug tests or breathalyzer tests and you're good, <laughs> right? The problem is, is I'd hang out with my friends on a Friday and I'd have to take that drug test and breathalyzer test on Monday. I'd hang out with my friends on Friday and say, I'm just going to drink tonight. And I'd drink a couple of beers and then they'd light up the weed behind me. And I'm like, well, maybe I could blow a shotgun. Mm -hmm. blow, blow me a shotgun, a secondhand smoke. It's not going to show up on my drug test. And I, <laughs> yeah, you laugh at that, right? The insanity. That's crazy, like right? And then one like of them tells me, hey, have you, have you ever heard of drinking apple cider vinegar? That cleans your system out. Have you ever yeah, heard of that before? I've heard of that, yes. Have you ever tried it? Uh, I've never tried it, no. <laughs> have you ever smelt apple cider vinegar? It's strong. It <laughs> I drank yeah. two 12 ounce bottles of apple cider vinegar trying to clear my, my system out. Wow. Do you think I'd pass a drug test or failed it? Um, 
I guess you failed I it. I failed it. <laughs> I failed it so bad. And you know how many more times I did that? Like three or four more you're times. You're like, it's going to work. You hear that in like AA, like the, <laughs> yeah. the whiskey and milk analogy. And you're uh, like, well, that's absurd. There's no way. You got to be a dumbass to do something like that. Whiskey and milk. Like, what are you talking about? It's like you explain drinking apple cider vinegar. It was like drinking. I felt like I drank battery acid. acid. It's horrible. Oh, it's my God. I had the worst indigestion ever. <laughs> felt like I was pissing like acid. It was the worst, right? And they gave me opportunity after opportunity, and I filled every one of them. With apple cider vinegar? You never thought to like maybe do like AZOs? Or- well, I didn't have the money to spend 60 bucks on the stuff from Smoothie King <laughs> oh or whatever stuff. it was, you know? <laughs> and even though when I'd get the 60 bucks together to get the stuff, yeah, you got the I would other fucking stuff. do drugs after doing the stuff, and I'd fail it. Like, Insane. I could not... No matter the consequences weighing over my head, the promises to myself, my mom, my dad, the, like to everybody, even when I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to go to rehab again. I had to do it. You know, like I had crossed this threshold where I'd wake up on, on, on Saturday after drinking on Friday and I, I, I was still thirsty. Yeah. You know, I still needed more. I had this obsession and this phenomenon of craving developing inside me where I could not not do it anymore. And um, they ended up sending me to a, a halfway house in Lake Charles. And I was there for about a month, getting loaded the whole time and hiding it. I left the halfway house because I knew they were going to bust me eventually. So I moved in with a guy that I got to be my sponsor. And uh, it was him and his wife and three kids. And they lived in a three-bedroom trailer. And they took this 18-year-old kid that they only had known for about a month and let him move in and sleep on their, tr- uh, sleep on their couch. Wow. And uh, every night before they would go to bed, they'd hold hands as a family. And I mean, their kids were like five and six years old. They'd hold hands as a family and they'd say the Lord's Prayer. And they'd say, the little kids were like, keep coming back. It works if you work it like totally culty, you know. <laughs> but uh, you could tell that they had grown up in recovery, yeah. you know. And uh, even when I didn't get loaded, that really impressed me. It, 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 it made a statement inside of me. It made an impact in my life that later on I always reflect upon. You know, every year that I get sober, I call that man and his wife and I thank him for helping me even though i didn't get it they didn't even ask me to leave their house i left their house because i had so much guilt and shame that i was getting loaded under their roof that i would rather live in the motel six off enterprise drive in lake charles louisiana than stay on their couch anymore Hmm. and uh, i remember i was living in that hotel i ran out of money and alcohol i was 18 years old i was left with myself and uh and i remember picking up the phone they had a landline at that time which is kind of foreign you know Mm -hmm. but uh his wife picked up the phone and uh, I couldn't get a word out. And I was just crying, sobbing on the other, on the other end of the phone. And she's like, Jacob, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, Jacob, did you relapse? I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> she knew the truth. I knew the truth. Everybody knew the truth. I couldn't say the truth. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, my dad drove through the middle of the night, four hours and came and picked me up and he brought me back to Homa and he picked up right where I'd left off. And, um, that's whenever uh, I was there for a few months and then Hurricane Katrina ends up making up landfall. And uh, the impact that that had, you know, I mean, people all across the country can, you know, hear about the devastation. Mm-hmm. But the insanity of my alcoholism and my addiction was that hurricane's making landfall and I ride it out 60 miles south by southwest of New Orleans, which got pretty fucked up. The emergency response vehicles aren't the road. The cops weren't on the road, but you know who's on the road? I am. 
need to find a gas station that's open. I know somebody's got some beer. Somebody's got some weed. I need to get some paper. Like I just needed relief. Mm. Whatever I had to do to go out through one of the most devastating storms in the country's history, I got to do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I just lived in I detox. And um, are we, you want to, because I'm about to get into some other stuff. Yeah. If we need to take a little break here. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know it, you're talking about the. Yeah, I mean, if this is uh, this is where you turn it around. Yeah, so ended up a couple days later. I mean, a couple months later, two days before Christmas in 2005. This is the end of my demise. I ended up going to a, uh, a house party with, uh, with some friends. I dropped off a bunch of sedatives. And uh, I dropped off the sedatives, and I ended up going to uh, the movies with this girl. And my phone starts ringing a couple hours later, and I, uh, it was my best friend, Corey. And I picked up the phone. And uh, I'm like, what do you want, man? He kept calling. And uh, he told me that the cops were at the house and my aunt was at the house and my little cousin had passed away. And he had taken what I'd given him and the combination of something else. Uh, I'd given him Xanax, he had taken methadone. He went to sleep and he didn't wake up. He was 19 years old. And uh, the most selfish thing in the world that I could have ever done was taking full responsibility for somebody else's life. And doing inventory work, I could see how selfish that I was. My sponsor pointed out, he's like, well, you played a part, but you weren't the only part that was played. Because a month before, he had done the same thing with somebody else. He didn't yeah. know any better, you know? And I pumped myself so full, so much, so full of that stuff. Why didn't it happen to me? It should have been, you know, like... And there it goes, selfishness, self-centeredness, manifesting itself over and over again. I remember showing up to the wake and my aunt and my uncle saying, Jacob would want to talk to you, but in my mind, they wanted to blame me for everything. Yeah. And I couldn't face that, you know? And uh, today, doing some inventory work, I know that I wasn't fully responsible for that, you know? Yeah. And there's plenty of people that might hear this that's heard my story along the way that I want them to know that they're not responsible. You play a part but you're not fully responsible. We don't have that much power. Yeah. And uh, the most hopeless feeling in the world is when you check out of these fly-by-night motel rooms and you got your garbage bags, your belongings, and you're like, what's my next move going to be? And that's what I had become. I was sitting on the curb outside of a, a, a Holiday Inn or a Motel 6 or an A-Bear Motel or whatever these little small motels are where I grew up. And I'm like, who am I going to call? Who didn't I mess over? Who's going to give me a place to sleep on their couch or some food or whatever, you know? And every day was just survival mode. And my friend Corey, his mom and his dad took me in and let me stay on their couch for several, uh, several weeks. And the end of March came and uh, we ended up going to the beach to Grand Isle. And they all had kids and responsibilities and all these things. So Sunday they went back to their lives and I didn't have anything. So I lived in my truck in Grand Isle. And I ran out of money and alcohol and drugs and anything that made me feel okay with me. And I was left with myself and I did not like to be left with myself alone. And I remember I called my dad, I was 20 years old. I was like, look, I have nowhere to go. Will you please help me? And I'll never forget what he said. I literally heard this a million times my whole life. He's like, Jacob, I love you, son. If you do the right thing and you stay straight, you'll always have a roof over your head. Like, no matter what, just come home. I want to take care of you, son. I love you. Mm. I was like, all right. You know, and I went to his house and I threw my garbage bags and my belongings in the house. And I uh, said I was going to an AA meeting in Lockport, which is 30 minutes away from Homa. Now, you might be an alcoholic if you have to lie about going to AA or to get loaded, you know, and that's what I did. 
And he called me like an hour later. And he's like, well, where are you at? And I'm like, oh, acceptance was the topic. I'm drinking coffee. You know, <laughs> we're going to Waffle House. And he's like, if you're lying to me, he was pretty pissed. <laughs> and uh, he went and checked up on me. And he walked into an all-women's big book study. And my, uh, my aunt, my Aunt Julia, was there. And she had been sober for five years. And uh, she, uh, he picked me up and he brought me back to her house. And he sat me across, she sat me across the kitchen table and my entire life, I'd had people, uh, from the time I was like 12 and 13 years old, doing ink blot tests down on me, like, why is Jacob disturbed? Jacob, you're an alcoholic. Jacob, you're a drug addict. Jacob, you're depressed. Like, all these people with all these degrees behind their names saying this is what you are. But nobody really ever asked a question, you know? And uh, she started asking me some questions like, can you drink and stop abruptly? Can you be entirely abstinent from alcohol, drugs, any minor mood altering substance? What's the longest period of complete abstinence that you've had? You know, how many hospitals have you been to? How many detoxes have you been to? This is what homelessness looks like. You live, you know, in the streets mm -hmm. with your garbage bag. Like, and after every question she asked, I gave her a detailed account of my experience and she gave me a detailed account of her experience. And she grasped my attention with, with depth and weight, like the yeah. program talks about. Like it was the first time in my life that I really identified with somebody on a personal level that was really understanding how I felt, you know. And uh, and I was never gonna get sober until that happened. And she like Alan on stepped my dad because my dad's like, you're not coming home. You've, you're you're fucked up. You gotta go to rehab again. And I was like, I've been through every treatment center in the state of Louisiana. Nothing's gonna help me. And they're like, well, why don't you call your cousin Dwayne? He, he lives in Baton Rouge. He's been sober for 20 years now. Maybe he can help you. And I'm making him a phone call. And I remember him asking me, are you willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober? And I was like, yeah, of course. I love sobriety, you know. <laughs> and uh, whatever it took, man, 30 days and I'm getting out of there, you know. Um, but I ended up getting, I call it the emperor's package. You know, I did like 10 months of inpatient halfway house treatment you know all this stuff i uh, i came to in a hospital bed on government street in baton rouge louisiana and uh, i don't know what my sobriety date is i say april the 2nd 06 i really don't know because i was in such a fog and i was having to be medically detoxed so i wouldn't have seizures uh, i didn't want to fuck up my brother's actual birthday which is april the 1st <laughs> so i knew it was after april 1st so i just said april 2nd you know it's whatever yeah and uh, that's where that's I got I sober at. All right. Well, cool. We'll take a quick break and then we'll uh, we'll be right back. Awesome. All right. Back from break, and uh, you just told a lot of stuff that you maybe you'll tell later. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks because like because you can almost like if you say it and then you have to repeat it, sometimes it can like lose its fire. But yeah. Just do it do what the spirit tells mm -hmm. you to do. So, sh share uh, get some of those nuts, man. Yeah. I had to grab some some of these uh nuts I put on. I, I treat my guests very well. I got water, <laughs> I got snacks. Yeah. Um Right. <laughs> My wife would kill you if she oh, heard really? you doing that. Oh, yeah, you need a She's like <laughs> this mouth. She could see somebody chewing gum literally from like 100 yards away in the airport. She's like, that fucking asshole is choosing this gum. I can hear it. I'm like, that's, what? Hey, that's why I, I can't chew gum because I start chewing it like a, like and, a mad cow. Now she's <laughs> pregnant. She's like... 
even more higher sensitivity. You know, I'm like, man, it's like your superpower or something, you know? Well, this is for her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So you um, go to treatment, yep. get the emperor's package, right? So I ended up, um, I ended up getting this guy to be my sponsor. He, um, he was an atheist. He had never worked the 12 steps or, you know, gotten down on her knees and did a third step prayer. We had done a four step, but it was super, super surface. And even though when I wrote it down on paper, I didn't really admit it out loud in the fifth step. I didn't really make amends or restitution to anybody I had harmed. And I was doing all the same behaviors without picking up the drink or the drug. So not only was I dealing, out, uh, dealing with all this guilt, shame, or remorse while I was out there getting loaded, I was dealing with all this guilt, shame, and remorse while I was in the program. Mm. And it was just becoming too much for me to bear. It was just like snowballing on me. And uh, I thought about drinking every day for 10 months. Uh, I said, if I don't drink, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine, you know. And uh, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict like I am, the time and place is going to come where you're either going to drink or you're going to get loaded, you know. And uh, I had insomnia one night. I had the obsession was just on me. And um, I, uh, I remember crawling out of bed. I couldn't fall asleep. And my mind was just racing about maybe drinking, but I knew I couldn't drink. But if you could smoke weed, because weed comes from the earth. But if, you know, and just all this stuff in my mind. And the next thought was maybe you should kill yourself. And that's not a requirement, and I don't, I don't wish that upon anybody. But I crawled out of bed, and I got down on my knees that night, and I cried out to something I didn't even know it was there for help. Uh, I was agnostic whenever I got here. I didn't have enough proof that there was God. Agnostic means without knowledge. I believe that there was something. I just wasn't sure what that was, you know. But I got down on my knees, literally crying tears, saying whatever you are whatever you ask of me please help me because i can't do this again i can't do this i'm going to kill myself i can't imagine my life the way it was the way that it is i don't know what i'm going to do please help me and uh, i ended up getting in bed and falling asleep that night and and going to sleep and uh and the, the, the literature talks about we make decisions all day long, but the decision's not going to avail anything. You know, like I take a piece of paper, I roll it up, and I throw it at a trash can. It rolls around the rim, and it hits the ground. And I'm walking away, and there's a little voice inside of me telling me to do what? Pick it up, right? Yeah. The decision has been made to pick it up. i got to grab it and throw it in the trash can after the decision's made. I made a decision that, not, that night not to stay sober the rest of my life, the rest of that year, the rest of that you know, week, I made a decision that I was going to do something about my problem, which was work the 12 steps. Cause I knew that was the only thing that would work. Cause I had literally tried everything else, but that, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, it also talks about, we meet God alone with one who might misunderstand, might misunderstand, uh, the wording of course, in the prayer that we say in the third step is quite optional. So long as we exp express it and we voice it without any reservation, Whenever I say the third step prayer, I believe it says, help me. I got down on my knees that night and I cried out to help. It was just a simple help me. You know, it wasn't something elaborate or great. Uh, I didn't get overwhelmed by the presence of God. I didn't see any burning bushes or voices. I literally felt like I was in hell. You, you fell know? asleep. Yeah, I fell asleep that <laughs> night. Exactly. I went to a beginner's meeting the next day. I made the decision to do something about my problem. I took the action the next day. I went to a beginner's meeting in Denham Springs, Louisiana, and uh, there was a guy named Thad there 
who rode a Harley, sleeved off with tattoos. He was actually from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he sponsored my roommate. And, uh, and I walked up to him after that meeting. I was like, look, man, I'm going to die if you don't help me. Uh, I can quote the book. I've read, read the, the literature over and over again. I've never worked the 12 steps. And uh, he said, I'm as willing as you are. And within three months, we went through all 12 steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When it said to write, we wrote. When it said to pray, we prayed. When it said to do the directions, we did it precisely how it was outlined. And I immediately started to get some relief. Um, see, this, the first two steps require no action whatsoever. They require only acceptance. It says that in the 12, 12 and 12 literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. Once we accept the fact that, A, I'm an alcoholic and my life is fucked, right? And I, since I'm not very good at managing my life because I could see it in step one, maybe out, something outside of me can manage my life better than I can. Step two, right? Once we accept those things, it's really easy for us to take step three, right? Um, after we take the third step together, me and him, holding hands, we say the prayer, help me, right? He outlines this fourth step, the inventory. It's the boogeyman, everybody in recovery. Anytime somebody comes up to me or I'm talking to them after a meeting, they're kind of new. What step are you on? Oh, I just relapsed. What step were you on? Was it four or was it nine? Because it's usually one of those two steps, right? Yeah. So he outlines this inventory, you know, resentment, fear, sex. He says, you've got a week to do this inventory. We're going to do it next Saturday morning at 8 a.m. I don't know why he liked to do inventory shit at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. You know, I'm 20 years old, 21 years old. But he, he was like, all right, we're going to do it 8 a.m. I was like, whatever. I'm willing. I'm super willing. I'm able. Let's do it. He calls me on Friday. He's like, oh, man, how's that inventory going? I'm like, oh, man, it's going great. He's like, you got any questions? I haven't really heard from you all week. You know, <laughs> typically people have questions. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, where are you at on it? I was like, well, I really haven't started it yet. You know, <laughs> he's like, uh, that's cool. Just come over to the house tomorrow. We're going to have coffee anyways. 8 a.m. though, right? I showed up at 8 a.m. And uh, he opens the door. He's got the coffee going like he promised me. He sits me at his kitchen table and he outlines the inventory, resentment, fear, and sex all over again. There's been periods in my sobriety, I've been sober for a little while, maybe early on, where I would have said, well, if he wants it enough, he'll get it whenever he's ready. He'll call me whenever he's willing. Yeah. He, doesn't he hasn't had enough yet or whatever it is, right? Because I've been there. I've heard it before. I've seen it before. For him to take the time, not once, but twice to sit down with me and to say, here, here's a pen, here's a paper, this is how you do it. You've got four hours to write down the most pressing problems and concerns. I'm gonna be playing Halo and Xbox over here. <laughs> and after your four hours is done, we're gonna do this fifth step. He saved my life. That's yeah. the only way I can describe it. He saved my life. Yeah. And I usually find that whenever I'm saying that and I have that attitude is lack of willingness on my part. Right. For right. me. Was some fear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I'm already projecting the fist step. Like, yeah. I can't put this stuff down on paper. He's going to, like, put a restraining order on me. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm, talking, I'm saying, like, as a sponsor, though. Right, right, right. You know, like, I'm just like, well, he's got to call me, man. I can't be chasing him down. Right. I've, well, I've done <laughs> that, too. Yeah. You know? A lot of times it's like I just have to uh, re say hello. Hey. And I've had guys also, like, come and do the, the four step while I just chill. You right. Know? Like, I, I can meet you halfway if you, you know. Well, it taught me a valuable lesson. The reason why I work with other alcoholics is not for them to stay sober. Mm -hmm. It's for me. It's for me. Yeah. Like, and I forget that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, it's like, that's the main thing. Yeah. And I forget that a lot of times, you know?
Uh, so he outlines it. I write whatever I need to write down. It wasn't like a novel or anything. We do this fifth step after it was done. He gives me a list, a list of the most glaring character defects or uh, instincts going astray, as the literature talks about, you know. And uh, everybody. So he, he wrote down your character defects yeah. as you. Uh, yeah, as so he had like a little tally list. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, false pride was one of them for me. You know, yeah. I'd rather, you know, look good and fail, you know, uh, some uh, self-seeking yeah. uh, fear, of course, you know, but everybody's list is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, these are the things that are blocking you off from God. And uh, knowing today, it's like the circle and the triangle, right? We have honesty, open-mindedness and willingness, unity, service and recovery. I had a priest in recovery one time tell me this at a retreat that I went to. He's like, if you're sitting on a three-legged bar stool and you remove one leg from the equation, what happens? You're going to fail, right? You're going to fall. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously. Unless you got incredible balance. Yeah, but. And you should join Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but uh, you're going to fall otherwise, right? Unless you're a magician or some shit. <laughs> If I'm not connected to God, I'm not connected to you. And if I'm not connected to you, I'm not connected to God. And that's what we look at is in the fourth step is our total inability to have a true partnership with somebody else. And he gives me this list and he said, these are the things that are blocking you off from your fellows. Go and ask God, sit quietly, review what we've done. Thank God from the bottom of your heart that you know him better. So you pray. Did you leave anything out? Are the stones properly in place? Because there's questions all in there. Yeah. Well, what stones? You know, step one, step two, the cornerstone. Step three, the keystone, because we're building an arch of freedom. It talks about all that, you know, are the stones properly in place? After all it's said and done, ask God for the willingness to remove these defects of character, right? Now, some of them are going to be removed right away because I could see the pain or the harm that it's caused other people, right? And I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to go through that again. But some of them, man, I want to hang on to a little bit more closely. I get a sense of satisfaction or well-being from them, right? It's a little bit harder for me to let go of those. I become willing to let go of those whenever I go and make amends and make restitution. Yeah. Because I could see that character defect face to face. Then I really become willing. Then I really know God from the bottom of my heart. And I thank him that I know him better. You know, like, that's where it's at. Mm -hmm. And after it's all said and done, sitting quietly for that hour of reflection... I say that seven-step prayer alone by myself on my knees. He told me, humbly on your knees, say this prayer. I believe the wording in that prayer, it believes thank you. It says thank you. Well, how's it go? Uh, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. It also says amen, yeah. you know. That's great that you, I, I realized in that moment I might have put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, you're good, you're good. Like you spit it out, you know. We had to learn that and the third step prayer. To go look for a job or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, mean, like I had to remember how it works and not miss, like, I couldn't even <laughs> leave, like, the out. Wow. Like, <laughs> rarely have we seen a person, like, if you left a out, yeah. you were, like, had to start oh, over. You got three chances. You guys from, it was, like, guys from uh, your halfway house, like, at meetings, just, like, being asked to read it and they're reciting it from memory. That's, like painful to watch it was pretty <laughs> bad yeah so he um you know because some of these character defects will serve usefulness but if it doesn't yeah. serve usefulness please remove it from me you know uh there's a good example i have that i can share with you because we talked a little bit about it at the beginning the character defect i went to alcoholics anonymous for a long time for the wrong motives you know for females or whatever 
and it blocked me off and it had me contemplating suicide for a while, you know, totally disconnected me and just, it destroyed me, right? So whenever I finally worked the 12 steps, started going through the process with that, he said, you're not healthy enough to go to regular AA meetings. I want you to go tell your story over there at that male treatment center that you went through. And I went over there and I told my story at that male treatment center that I went through. And I started talking about the 12 steps and referencing the 12 steps. And they're like, hey, can you come back next week and read the doctor's opinion to us? And I went back, I read the doctor's opinion. I'm like, hey, can you come back next week and do step one with us? And I went back the next week and I did step one. They're like, hey, can you come back and do step two? I went back to that treatment center for 11 years. Mm. Every Wednesday, tragedy, happiness, despair, whatever I had going on in my life, I was always present there, present there. Some days I couldn't even read the big book because I was crying and I had so much heartache in my life going on, losing my dad, losing an unborn daughter, like whatever was going on in my life, I was always there because I needed them just as much as they needed me. Like we just talked about that. What that did for me, he sacrificed time and energy. I needed those guys just as much as they needed me in that spot. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long we've been sober, you know? My character defects serve usefulness in that aspect, right? It brought me to them, but I needed them just as much. Yeah. Um, and that, and the eleven next years. Eleven years. Wow. I went there for eleven years until I moved to the Big Easy. You know, uh, I miss it. I get to go back. I try to go back maybe every three or four months, and I do a weekend twelve-step workshop, and uh, we go through all the steps in a weekend, and uh, it's good. But you kind of lose people's uh, concentration after a while. Yeah. That's you know, that's whole... like three weeks sober. It's like, uh, they're kind of like spaced out a little bit. You know what I'm saying? How long uh, does it take? Uh, well, I did it in eight hours the last time, just cherry picking steps. Wow. And just, I mean, you're constantly in the book, though. I mean, yeah. just cranking it out, man. Pee breaks, water. Yeah, they kind of just come and go. We don't really break. You can yeah. just kind of go at your leisure, you know. Um, but the next week, we ended up... Uh, getting together and we outlined the eighth step you know the amends list because uh, it says we made it when we took our inventory so we looked at the inventory because usually if i'm resentful at somebody they usually harm me and if they harm me i usually retaliated so i could get a pretty good basis for the list right but there's some amends that i uh that are innocent bystanders that i need to make you know that just weren't i had no sex relations no fear or no resentment in connection with them and i need to add those to the list usually my list looks like who it was first column, what did I do second column, and when am I gonna make that amends third column, but I leave it blank and I talk about it with my sponsor. And I go over that list mm. on when I'm gonna go about making it, how I'm gonna make it, am I gonna write a letter, you know, like I go through the details. So repeat that, who it was. Who it was first column, second column is what did I do okay. to affect that person or harm that person, and the third column is now, later, or never. Like, yeah. and go through the details on if you're going to make it. Cause it says don't delay it. So you do it in a column. You don't do the cards. Mm -mm. Yeah. yeah. Everybody I has, like I don't like the cards. Yeah. I mean, every, no, no, not, not that, um, you know, but I just, for not, some, well, everybody has hard to, for me to keep yeah. track of. I've yeah. never even heard the cards. This yeah. is literally the first people, time. Yeah. A lot of people put them on cards and they put never on one side or, or, yeah. or they make a pile of like never, you know, well, they're not, no, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> they're not they're not doing it right now i'm joking i'm just joking yeah no but that's, that's good though I like, yeah I like, there's no I like, there's no clear directions yeah. in the big book on what you do yeah you know? but like, i like the, the idea of making a column right list, just as long as you so discuss it with uh -huh. somebody before you make it yeah like that's the main thing right i might start doing the columns actually yeah my my men's list kind of 
it's drastically going down since I've been sober. Thank God that I'm yeah. aware, but there's some periods in my life where I go through the steps every six months to a year Yeah, for me, like mm -hmm. I, I at least do an inventory every six months to a year. Yeah. I'm the educational variety. Cause sometimes it's like three months. I do, I do an inventory, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, um, like, I like to do an inventory every year, too. Oh, yeah, I have to. Yeah. Even on a full one, because I don't, because, I mean, you know, not as, as as every, as a lot of people, I'm not as consistent on the nightlies as I should yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of par for the course. Yeah. And a lot of times people will say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm doing great. My old grand sponsor would always say, you better watch when somebody thinks that they're doing great. You need to stay the hell away from them, because that's when it's about to blow up, you know, yeah. like. How many times have I thought I've been doing great and look behind me in the wake of destruction? I'm like, oh, shit, you know, like, look at all this stuff. Um, but I started having a spiritual experience whenever I did the third step and the fourth step and the fifth step. I have an awakening in step nine. It was really the first tangible evidence of that there, there was a God out there and he wanted something to do with me. He wanted to do business with me, you know, or I wanted to do business with him. And um, so a couple of the amends that I had to make, I, uh, I remember I was going to Mardi Gras. And uh, Mardi Gras is a big deal here in Louisiana. I was 18 years old. I was two years sober reflecting back on my day, and this actually came to me. I forgot about it. This wasn't on my original inventory. And I wrote it down on paper what had happened. And I'm not proud of this, but I remember going to Mardi Gras. I didn't have enough money to go to Mardi Gras, so I walked into a gas station. I asked the lady for something behind the counter, and when she turned her back, I stole a donation thing for the muscular dystrophy or the cerebral palsy. or I don't even know which one it was. It doesn't even matter which one it was. I stole money from an institution that really needed it. And it wasn't a million dollars. It wasn't a thousand dollars. It was enough money for me to survive that day and do whatever I needed to do. And I wrote it all down on paper and I called my sponsor the next day and I'm like, hey, you know, this is what happened. I need to make amends. He's like, well, what are you going to do to make amends? I said, well, I'm going to go to a gas station. I'm going to make an anonymous donation to this little can thing because it's an anonymous program. He's like, well, you didn't harm that can. You harm those people. You harm that institution. Like, let me know how that's going to work out for you. I'm like, all right. Mm -hmm. I called him the next day. I'm a, I said, uh, all right, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to admit my wrongs in the letter. I'm going to put the money in the letter, but I'm going to put Jacob B, my last initial. I'm not going to put a return address because it's an anonymous program. <laughs> he's like, well, how are you going to know if the amends was made? Let me know how that works out for you. Because I had so much fear going through with this amends, like uh, uh, the guilt, the shame, the remorse. I couldn't believe I did this. Like, I'm going to disgrace my family. They're going to come and arrest me. Yeah. I'm going to be in the news. Like, all this <laughs> stuff, right? Is it like you can't save your face and your ass at <laughs> the same time? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, like... Uh, I remember watching those old Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons growing up, and the Coyote gets an idea to catch the Roadrunner, and he has a light bulb go off over his head. That's what an intuitive thought looks like to me. Mm. And I literally, with everything in me, that's what my plan was going to be. And I get to the mailbox, and an intuitive thought goes off. I need to make sure this amends was made. Full name, address, everything, and I mailed it off. And I got a letter back a week later, and I remember getting that letter back, and I called my sponsor. I didn't even open it. I was like, man, I got this letter back. I don't know what to do. He's like, well, why don't you read it, you know? And then I opened it up, and I read it, and uh, I could probably remember. I don't have it with me, but I keep it in my big book. It said, Jacob, thank you for your honesty and your willingness to correct your wrongdoings. God bless you for the money that you, uh, you donated. It will be used to assist the hundreds of local families that we serve. Thank you for your honesty to correct your, your wrong, and God bless you. And she ended up signing it, you know, and it was along those lines. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, um, 
what if I wouldn't have put my name and my address on that letter? I wouldn't have got that back in return. I wouldn't be, I might not be sober today. Mm. It was the, uh, the, it, the impact of, of God in my life was sudden and profound in that moment. Like it was like a light switch went off. It was like the mountaintop experience that Bill talks about. It was sudden and profound and it overwhelmed me. Like I knew there was a God out there. I didn't know what it was, but there was something out there, you know, and, uh, and I was able to forgive myself as well. And uh, every time I get an opportunity, I, I make a donation to that organization. Whenever I go to a gas station, I put money in that thing. You know, it's like an ongoing amends. It's always going to be there. Yeah. And uh, another amends that I had to make was uh, I was uh, I was a couple years sober, and uh, my my aunt Donna had saw my brother in the mall in my hometown. And that's the aunt, the mother of the the cousin that passed away, and. Uh, I avoided her for the first two years of my sobriety. And my brother called me and he says, look, I saw your Aunt Donna. She knows you're sober. She wants to talk to you. Please give her a call. She really wants to hear from you. And I, it took me about a week to, to, to get the willingness to call her. And I finally heard her voice on the, other, on the other end of the phone. And when I heard her voice, I cried like I've never cried my entire life. I, I said, I can never give you your son back. This is the part that I played that night. This is what happened. Whatever I can do to make it right, please make me aware of it, please. And, uh, and she said, Jacob, I love you unconditionally no matter what. And we didn't want to blame you for anything. We wanted to tell you that you were going to end up just like Nick if you weren't going to stop what you were doing. Uh, we, we love you. We're glad you're sober. And we care about you. And, and we want to see you. You know. And I remember I invited her to come and see me pick up my two-year chip and tell my story that I lied about going to when my dad kind of busted me. Mm -hmm. I picked up my two-year chip at that meeting and my aunt showed up and saw me tell my story and pick up that chip. And, uh, and it was about seven years ago, seven years, no, six years ago. I ended up getting a phone call the day before Mother's Day and uh, it was from my mom. And she told me that my Aunt Donna had cancer and she was fairly young. She was in her 50s. And uh, she had colon cancer and uh, I, I drove down there and I held her hand on Mother's Day and I went and saw my mom, but I went to pray with her. I went to tell her I love her and to just to just overwhelm her and just hug on her and love on her and just be there for, her, you know, and uh, she ended up having cancer in her colon is where it started and spread across her whole body. And she took the chemo and she fought the chemo for about seven or eight months until she couldn't take it anymore. And um I got a call about a week before Christmas that year, and it was from my mom saying she wasn't going to make it through the night. And I remember driving down to home. It was about an hour and a half drive from Baton Rouge where I was living. And I got to the house that my grandfather had built that I grew up going to. And she was in a hospice bed in the corner of the room, and her two daughters were next to her, and she had some close friends close to the bed as well. And I walked in the door, and I got down on my knee, and I held her hand. And uh, my aunt had gotten in, my other aunt had gotten in from Missouri, and they asked all non-immediate family to leave the room so that they can have their time to say their goodbyes. And I got up to leave, and they told me not to move to stay exactly where I was. And then I was there whenever she, she took her last breath, and I remember driving back to Baton Rouge in complete silence watching the sun come up and thinking of what my old grand sponsor had told me. I said, well, Irvin, I might not ever have a... Have, have the opportunity to make amends for some of these things. And he says, as long as you stay willing, you always have the opportunity. You have to be aware for the opportunity when it presents itself though. Wow. And I was riding back and thinking to myself, I never thought I'd be able to make amends to my little cousin for the part that I had played. And it hit me that I was there in this place when his mother left this earth. Mm. And uh, 
see, I got these blinders on and all I could see is this, is me, you know, but when I take these blinders off, there's this whole view that comes in and I, and I could see it, right? And, and preparation and opportunity on a daily basis. And I'm preparing myself today, not for tomorrow, for six months down the road, for a year down the road, you know? And I'm so grateful that I was able to see that, that gift for what it was, you know? And, uh, and they asked me to speak at her funeral, which is an honor in itself. And before I went up to do the eulogy, her best friend came and grabbed me and she was crying. And she says, you have no idea of how proud your aunt was of you. Uh, she, and she talked about her come and see me tell my story those years before. And she said, she went to support you, but more than anything, she went to make sure that you were doing the things with your life that you promised her that you were doing. And when she saw the man that you had become up there telling your story, she was able to have a closure on her son's death. Oh, wow. And we don't know when we're going to be of service to God and the people about us. Yeah. Like people watch us. We don't, we don't know that. Um, she was buried seven years to the day that her son passed away. The, the day that she was laid to rest was the, sa the same day that her son There's no flimsy reader coincidence in that. Like, I truly believe that she's at home with her son, you know, and I get comfort in that. And, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we, we find God through this. The bigger the fear, the greater the experience is the way I always like to see it, you know. Uh, uh, last amends I'm going to talk about was I was in, I had a high school sweetheart, a girl named Leslie, and I took hostages whenever I was drinking, you know, and she was a good girl. We were together from the time that I was 12 until I was, uh, I was 18 years old. And she ended up uh, graduating, going to college, and we ended up breaking up. And I remember sitting at my camp in Kogadru with my best friend, John. He had gotten sober when he was like 13 or 14 or some crazy shit. <laughs> and we were burning sage talking about growing through the amends process. And he asked if there were any amends that I hadn't made. And I said, well, yeah, to, to Leslie. And he says, well, why haven't you made it yet? I said, well, to be honest with you, she's about to get married in about a month. I feel like it would be selfish of me to show up and say, hey, here I am, make me feel good, but bring up maybe some old feelings for her. It was suggested by my sponsor to wait, to remain willing, but not seek it out. God's sneaky, man. You know, I, got, I, I literally hadn't talked to this girl in four or five years. I get a message from her on a social networking site. Uh, hey, I had a dream we were in like a canoe race or something. I mean, it was like totally random. I'm like, yeah, LOL or whatever, you know, hey. Uh, I said, hey, I'd really like to talk to you if you're willing to talk to me because she initiated the conversation. And she said, uh, yeah, of course, you know, that's fine. I ended up calling her a couple, a couple of days later. And I was like, I didn't have to go through all the gory details. I was like, you know, I was selfish, dishonest, and considerate. I put you in some really uncomfortable positions, driving around drinking and driving all the time. I ruined your reputation. You stayed with me through it all. What can I do to make it right? You know, and she was like, Jacob, I heard you were sober, and I heard you were making things right with people. And to be honest with you, you probably harmed me more than anybody as a result of your drinking and your drug use. I just wish you would have done this sooner. I forgive you. And I was like, okay, you know, it was, wow. it was done. And I remember calling my aunt that 12 step me immediately after. And I was like, Hey, I talked to, I talked to Leslie. I made a men. She's like, how do you feel? I was like, Oh, I love her. I miss her. You know, crying and shit. It's <laughs> like, I love her so much. And she's like, you know, God allowed her to make, uh, write that letter to you. God allowed you to make that amends and God's allowing you to feel everything that you're feeling. And you know what you have, you know what that's called, Jacob? I'm like, no, what? She's like closure. You have closure. Hmm. And I was just telling you a little bit, you know, a, a little bit of my story whenever we were offline I'm married today to a beautiful girl that's in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She's sober. Uh, she's been sober for 
I want to say five years, coming up on five years in June. I met her at a, a Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous conference. I always joke about it. It was a Texipal, which is the Texas State Conference of Young People. It's always Halloween weekend, so of course, being a younger person, she was dressed in costumes. She was dressed as a unicorn wearing a tutu, mm -hmm. and uh, she was three months sober. We didn't get together at that point, but we introduced ourselves. How are you doing, you know? And uh, I was going through some stuff, some personal growth. And, you know, a number of months later, I, I saw her on, you know, we were friends. We connected on a social networking, you know, uh, page, like most people do whenever you meet somebody at a conference. And I, uh, I ended up reaching out to her. Hey, how you doing? You know, how long you been sober? And uh, she said a year. I was like, oh, I'd really like to take you out. Because I had a list of questions for, through trial and error that I had to ask, you know, because I was obviously interested in her and I thought, Ooh, a year sober, she's legal, you know, <laughs> in recovery terms is the way I always say, you know, but I said, you had a sponsor. Have you worked the steps? Do you sponsor women? Like, and she answered yes to all of them. You know, when we do this sex inventory, we look at all the, the first four columns as all the garbage, who it was. I was selfish. I was dishonest. I was inconsiderate. I made her jealous, suspicious, or bitter. You know, what my fault was. You know, all the garbage. Where do I get an ideal from? The fifth, co fifth column. What should I have done instead? Because it says, in this way, we try to shape a sane ideal. So I learned, finally, all these years later of being sober, eight years later of being sober, that I was going to turn these liabilities into assets, and I was going to do what I should have done instead before, with this girl, right? Mm -hmm. She answered yes to all my questions. She always jokes and says I was very direct and very forward and it kind of alarmed her, <laughs> but I knew what I wanted, you know, and uh, she agreed to have dinner with me and she was in Houston, Texas and I'm in Louisiana, but she said we had to talk via FaceTime or Skype for three months and get to know each other before she would come into town and we'd have I bet that was like Skyping and FaceTime is like super awkward sometimes. It really wasn't though. Cause she talks a lot. She's <laughs> yeah. Italian and I talk a lot, you know, uh, but it created an intimacy that I had never known before. Yeah. And, uh, the first date that I took her on, I brought her to a place called Manresa, which is one of the most sacred places in the world to me. I, I really discovered a relationship with God there early on in sobriety. The first couple of years I got sober. That's where I went for a silent retreat it's an old plantation school in the Mississippi River with these oak alleys all over the property. It's something like out of a novel or something. It's a beautiful place. And I brought her there. And, uh, you know, whenever we, uh, we got married, uh, we, I tried to do it the right way. I tried to court her. I tried to respect her. I tried to do everything different than I had ever done before. And uh, my capacity for being of service, you know, in AA is I sponsored these guys. I did this treatment and corrections work. I've done all that. And it really trained me to be of service to her, to my wife. And now we're expecting to be parents and we're going to have a child due August 15th in like three months, you know, and I get to be of service to this child and I get to put their welfare ahead of my own, you know, and it really all comes full circle and it's a beautiful thing to be a part of, you know, I'm so grateful for that, you know, but I learned from those mistakes and today this is what I have, you know, and, uh, and I grow from it. Uh, so 10, 11, and 12, the steps, maintenance steps we hear in the program sometimes, you know, you know, I go through the day, I pause when I'm agitated, I'm doubtful, you know, I, uh, I make amends quickly if I've harmed anybody, I continue to look for fear, selfish, self-seeking, dishonesty, 
Uh, I admit those wrongs quickly. I call somebody, my sponsor or a close friend, and I take some action and I try to help somebody else immediately after that. Uh, I wish I could do that a little bit better sometimes. Uh, I, my, my job is very high, you know, high, high, um, high energy in the heat and construction. It's, it's very hard to apply spiritual principles sometimes in my work environment, but yeah. that's where I spend most of my time, you know. Yeah. Step 11 is something I take a little bit more closer look at, though. I, uh, I wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. I drive about 300 miles a day for work. I leave my house at 5 a.m., and it's a 30-minute drive to get to the, the foot of the uh, Bonnie Carey Spillway, which is a bridge, a long bridge that goes over the uh, Lake Pontchartrain. And uh, I sit in complete silence for 30 minutes. I don't look at emails. I don't look at phone calls or text messages. It's my time to get focused in on what I got to do that day, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, you know, and I just arrange my day. I ask for some direction. I sit quietly. I talk to God. And uh, it's another hour drive to get to Baton Rouge to my office from that 30-minute mark. And I watch the sunrise over Lake Pontchartrain. There's bald eagles' nests all around. I can watch the, the eagles perched up on the branches. And I listen to some type of motivation, either podcast or, or church or or some type of inspiration to kind of get me lifted through the day. You know, I try to fill my day with speakers or something that's going to mo motivate me in a positive, constructive manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, at night, whenever I retire, I, I have some books that I like to read. Sometimes I read a paragraph. Sometimes I read a page. Sometimes I read a chapter. I don't really put any type of a, a, a time frame on it. I read whatever sparks my interest until I'm done. And I have a journal that my wife actually got me for our first wedding anniversary. And, uh, and I put down whatever's on my mind, good, bad, or indifferent. Sometimes it's just some words on some paper. Sometimes it's I'm selfish because of. Yeah. And, uh, and I, if I'm putting I'm selfish because of whatever it is, three or four days in a row, I probably need to discuss that with somebody. It's a guided meditation. It's able to, I can see my stuff in black and white, good and bad. And I can look at it and I can correct it if I need to correct it and talk to someone immediately. And uh, step 12, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, since I've gone through the 12-step process, I've had a psychic change, but it's a catch-22. I have to continue to have a psychic change in order to continue to have a spiritual experience. I have to carry the message to you in order to get that, you know. I, um, I had this great opportunity um, to be the area 27 corrections chair for Louisiana. And, uh, which was, I was the facilitator whenever the correctional institution in the state of Louisiana wanted some type of a program, pamphlets, literature, they contacted me and I would in turn find somebody to go in. We're the most incarcerated state in the entire country. Uh, where um, Angola is the largest prison in the country, population wise and square acreage. Wow. And, uh, we had been absent in Angola for about 10 years outside AA people going in. The oldest AA meeting in the state of Louisiana is the sober group. It's in Maine prison. There's lifers in there with over 40 years of sobriety. Yeah, it's, it blows my mind, you know. But uh, I got a call from, uh, from Camp C, which is short time, 15 years of time or less, from the social worker there saying that he wanted some information on what AA is. Really, he wanted some pamphlets and some books. So I was like, well, look, let me come in and drop it off. You know, in my mind, I'm like PICPC, -P you know, public information. And I went in, I gave him what he wanted. I said, look, can we set up maybe a day and a time having a meeting over here in this camp? 
And by the time that I left that meeting, we had a date, a time, everything set up, 6.30s on Sunday. We're going to have our first meeting. And uh, I remember calling my co-chair, a guy named Ben here in, in uh, New Orleans area, saying, man, we're finally getting in and all this stuff and being pumped. And um, I ended up getting a phone call the next day. My dad was sick and my dad uh, was in the hospital. And uh, for seven days, he was in the hospitals and his organs were shutting down one by one by one. And he uh, ended up passing away and I was holding him and my brothers were holding me. And it was the most bittersweet experience of my entire life to be present when you're, I mean, you've heard my story and how impactful he was in my life, you know? And I remember my uncle grabbing me immediately after he passed and looking at me and he was crying. My uncle did not cry. And he says, you have no idea of how proud your dad would be of you and how you handled yourself in this situation. I would literally give up every material possession just for my dad to be proud of me, to be the man that he knew that I could be in that situation. He always knew I had the potential to do it and I got to do that, you know? So we ended up laying the rest, but I had to miss the meeting, like getting it started. I was the only one that was gonna go in to go help get it started, you know? So I had to postpone it a couple weeks. It really was a godsend. It, I needed that, again, just at the right time. Yeah. I ended up driving, it was an hour and a half drive to get to Angola from Baton Rouge. I remember driving there and talking to my co-chair, Ben, and saying, man, I'm going in, I'm finally going in, you know? And he's like, dude, I got a sponsee that took his time a year sober. Maybe you're gonna bump into him, he's in there. He's got over, over a couple years sober. He's been reading his big book every night next to his bed. That's the only meeting that he has over there. Mm. But he's been right in New York and he's been right in the central office in Baton Rouge trying to get some information. I'm like, dude, now I'm going to bump into him. You know, it's like 10,000 inmates at this place, you know? Yeah, 10,000 yeah, inmates. Yeah, it's the most incarcerated state. Don't get me started. Wow. It's, it's a moneymaker. And that's the reason why we have so much incarceration. But I get over this meeting. There were 13 inmates. Eight had never been to an AA meeting before in their life. So I had all big books and stuff like that donated. This is the short time. Yeah, the short time group, right. And uh, so I did like the doctor's opinion. This is what we are. This is what we're not. The disease concept, you know, a little bit of AA 101. After it was all said and done, this last guy comes up to me. and He's like, man, I really like how you broke the book down. It reminded me a lot of my sponsor. I'm like, sponsor? It's like, really? Where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from New Orleans. I was like, really? Who's your sponsor? He's like, oh, I was like, you're, you're, you're Earl. Dude, I called him by his full name first and last. And I like, I took him off guard. He's like, Whoa, what oh, are you kind of, <laughs> he's like, what? How you know, I was like, man, you've been reading that book every, every night before bed or year, you know, like all this stuff. And he's like, damn, you know, you know, all this information. I was like, man, I've been hearing about you. He's like, the only thing that says I'm locked up are the bars on these windows. I'm free than I've ever been in my entire life in this place. Mm -hmm. I want these other guys to have what I got. I was like, damn, you know, I was like, I didn't know if there was other 12 guys needing a meeting of alcoholics and So I didn't know if they were alcoholic or if they were serious or if they were just trying to get out of their dorm. I didn't know. I know one guy needed it. I made it a point to go every Sunday and drive over there, an hour and a half drive there, an hour and a half drive back, because that dude needed that meeting of alcoholics and Anonymous. Wow. We ended up getting 20 people in that group. We named them another chance group of alcoholics and Anonymous. I usually have my big book, and I got a big book cover from them. It's called Another Chance Group of Alcoholics Anonymous to meet at 6.30 in Camp C in Angola, Louisiana at the uh, State Penitentiary. You know, this, this Earl, there's an episode of his up in uh, our podcast. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He like was so like the second episode. Um, yeah, like so, second or third. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, dude, we had 20, 20 people 
got in this group. And uh, out of the 20 people, we went through the 12 steps out of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a group, when it said to pray, we prayed. When it said to write, we wrote. I went over there on a weekend and listened to fist steps all weekend. And I had a garbage bag and I took the evidence and I just crumbled it up, ripped it apart and threw it in a trash bag and destroyed it afterwards. And uh, after it was all said and done, they let me bring in gumbo and jambalaya and like let me cook. And I, like, I brought in food for these guys and we had like a little party. And then after that, they went back to their dorms and I went, I went every other week and there were 40 members of that group after a while and it was their group wow. and they brought each other through the steps. I don't go there anymore. Earl got released like five years early off of his sentence or something like yeah. that, you know, and, but that meeting's still going on. We, me and Earl just last week went and picked up a guy that we met in there. He's been so, he doesn't even know his sobriety date. He was locked up for 41 years, 41 years incarcerated, and he's free today. He made a mistake whenever he was 19 years old. He's been incarcerated since he was 19 years old. And I said, dude, Oliver, how long have you been sober now? He's like, well, I quit drinking in 82, I believe. <laughs> I haven't done drugs since, I think, 84. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, dude, wow. I got to get you a sobriety chill. And he's out. That's I was like, amazing. let me get you lined up to go to some meetings. He's like, I ain't going to an AA meeting unless you and Earl bring me. I met y'all in Angola, and I said, well, I'm going to a meeting. It's going to be with y'all. And we picked him up, and we brought him to the men's group uh, the, uh, last Wednesday. Oh, dude. Yeah. No, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, dude. Oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah, man. That's crazy. But uh, This past Wednesday. This past oh, Wednesday. Man, I was having dinner with my family. Yeah. Yeah. But it just proves that no matter what your present circumstances you can live in a new and wonderful world oh, man. with complete Amazing. freedom, no matter where you are in this world. And, uh, you know, it, in the book, it says we have to find a power greater than ourselves, right? Obviously, but where and how are we going to find this power? And, and it also says later on, it says for deep down in every man, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. You know, in the last analysis, it may be there that he may be found deep down within us. The last place that I wanted to look for God was in myself, right? Home is my problem. Morgan City is my problem. I'm going to join the Navy. The Navy is going to fix everything. Everywhere I went, I was the common denominator. I have to get out of myself long enough to help you in order to experience the presence of something greater than me. That's how it works, you know. I, I, trying, to, trying to describe God's like trying to explain the sin of a rose. You can't explain the sin of a rose. You experience the sin of a rose. Yeah. And we all have different concepts of God, but we experience God the same. Whenever I help you, I experience God, you know. Yeah. So. Wow. That's it. That's what I got. Damn, dude. Yeah, yeah dude. Thank you so much, man. That was like very... Um, inspirational yeah it was, it was good it was a good time yeah <laughs> be your co-host next time yeah dude. can't believe hey. earl was i'm gonna have to go check out the podcast yeah, man. If, yeah, you would, if you would have listened to it before you got i'm here. gonna check it out <laughs> yeah so whenever i'm driving I, to work like, this there, week there's, i've got like there's like 20 episodes i know everybody now, so hopefully I'm sure, so yeah so hopefully uh this this thing continues man and hopefully like uh inspirational people like you keep coming on and uh um and there's people out there hearing this and getting hope man because i tell you what i don't think anybody could listen to your story and not get hope from it. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Peace.